Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ohio's in the national spotlight again, but not for good reasons. One of our U.S. senators is embarrassing the state. One of the stories we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Layla, I turn to you. Does Ohio's U.S. Senator J.D. Vance really say he would have violated the U.S. Constitution had he been Donald Trump's vice president after the 2020 election? What did he say he would have done on a national broadcast this weekend? Yeah. Well, we all remember how Trump shamefully pressured Mike Pence to reject electors from several states when he oversaw Congress's ceremonial tally of electoral votes on January 6, 2021. Trump backers in several states that Biden won assembled alternative slates of Trump electors in hopes they'd be officially counted instead of Biden's electors. And we all remember what happened that day at the Capitol when things weren't going Trump's way. We remember the insurrectionists storming the Capitol and chanting, hang Mike Pence, because Pence refused to do the unconstitutional thing and carry out Trump's wishes. Well, in a magnificent display of pandering and sycophancy, Vance told ABC News's George Stephanopoulos on Sunday that he would have done the unthinkable thing that Mike Pence had refused to do. Vance said that had he been Donald Trump's vice president, he wouldn't have resisted Trump's request to reject those electoral votes from several swing states that Biden won. He said, I would have told the states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and so many others that we needed to have multiple slates of electors, and I think the U.S. Congress should have fought over it from there. That is the legitimate way to deal with an election that a lot of folks, including me, think had a lot of problems in 2020. I think that's what we should have done. Yeah, You know, when he says a lot of folks think there are problems with the election, he doesn't have a single piece of evidence. He's right. He's putting out absolute crap. He's, it's, he's basically lying to America by saying there were problems with the election. Investigation after investigation, judge after judge said there were no problems with this election. So, so our, one of our two senators is making nonsense up on national television. But the much more distressing part of this is he would violate the Constitution for de yeah. I can't believe our U.S. senator did that. I asked the question this morning. We're going to look. Has any U.S. Senator from Ohio in history openly advocated throwing out the Constitution because the ends justify the means. It is horrendous that this guy represents Ohio. He doesn't know what he's talking about or he does know what he's talking about. It's and it's as sinister as can be. 
And I, I'm certain that this was his big power play to get to, to get that uh, to be on the ticket with Donald Trump, and and I'm sure that sealed the deal. That's exactly what Donald Trump needed to hear, and it's so despicable. Oh. You know, Stephanopoulos also asked Vance about his never Trumper comments. How he once said that he felt Trump was arrogant and fundamentally divisive, and Vance's response was, "Well, he proved me wrong in office." <laughs> I think even Donald Trump would agree that once he got into office, he was even more divisive than any of us even thought possible. Well, he further, he made it worse because Stephanopoulos also asked him about, should the president follow what the Supreme Court says? And right. he said, no, not always. He should and, have the power to I defy mean, the Supreme Court. You can't right. do that. We have a structure. If the Supreme Court makes a ruling, that's it. And we, you know, we're not always happy about the rulings, but that's the way the Constitution has structured our government. He would throw that out. I mean, basically... Yes. He he's he's saying I would remake government. I would throw out the Constitution just to serve my master. And he's another guy that we've sent to Congress who has just no decision making on his own. He'll do whatever the boss says. And the boss is Donald Trump, who, you know, the criminal former president. It's amazing that this is what we got. And we could have a second. We have two two of the three yeah. guys from the Republican Party trying to go. Uh, to replace, um, to be Senate this fall or doing the same thing. I'll do whatever Donald Trump tells me, you know, hail Trump. It's unbelievable what we've become in Ohio. We used to have some of the most astute politicians ever. I mean, we have the only guy in history who was both president and chief of the Supreme Court. And now we have J.D. Vance and maybe Bernie Moreno, how far we have fallen. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The U.S. Senate proposed a way to deal with our southern border issues. Lisa, what are some of Ohio's best-known elected leaders saying about it? They've all come together, right? <laughs> yes, but not not <laughs> in the way you would expect. So that $118 billion bipartisan border security bill was unveiled Sunday night. It combines aid to Ukraine with an overhaul of the asylum process and also the presidential power to expel migrants if the system becomes overwhelmed. Well, everybody in the Ohio GOP has strong opposition, as you would suspect, including Senator J.D. Vance and Representative Jim Jordan of Champaign County. Jordan says Biden doesn't care about the border or your safety. He said he opened the border and stopped deporting criminals. Senator J.D. Vance said in several media posts said he denounced the bill. Can't imagine why any Republican supports this atrocious proposal, allowing the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas to grant asylum claims without going through the immigration court. He says that's absolutely the worst provision of the bill. And a lot of Republicans from other states had some pretty stupid things to say about it. But Senator Sherrod Brown, of course, he supports it. He says, we have to come together to secure the border and stop the flow of fentanyl. There's like a, a bill that he co-sponsored that's part of this. It's trying to, you know, stop the flow of fentanyl over the border. And he says he wants his colleagues to put politics aside and get this done. Well, this is a little bit risky on the Republicans' part because they want this to be an issue in the presidential election. Donald Trump is telling them, don't make a deal because he wants to keep talking about the, the border. This is one of the few issues that they think they've got America's attention on because Fox News keeps trying to make it relevant to people for whom it's not really relevant. But 
Biden's going to be able to say, we were trying to close the border. We, we had a bill that would have allowed us to close the border anytime we reached a pretty low threshold. That's what this bill would have done. And the Republicans wouldn't pass it because they wanted to make politics out of it. That's a good argument. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard for the Republicans to say no, no, no. They're in a tough spot here because this this would do something about the border. And, you know, Biden's gotten tougher on his stance, you know, as far as that goes, especially with asylum and and closing the border if necessary. But this quote, I loved it from uh from uh, Brian Schatz, the senator, Democratic senator from Hawaii, he said, I've never seen anything like it. They literally demanded a specific policy, got it, and then killed it. And I think Americans are smart enough to understand what's happening. And if the Democrats are able to message correctly, it's going to make the Republicans look like hypocrites. And they also look like they're subservient to Donald Trump, who's not even an elected official and could be going to jail. Uh, a dangerous move. They talked real strong. I mean, Jim Jordan always you know, gets out there and makes big pronouncements. But it's a risky move because you had a partly bipartisan effort to fix this. And the people that want Donald Trump to win are interfering with the administration of our government. I think what angers me the most about this is that House Speaker Mike Johnson had to confer with Trump about the bill. Yeah. And then he said, oh, it's, it has, you know, no chance of passage after talking to Trump, who's not in office. Right. And could be going to jail because when he was in office, he was breaking the law. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost said last year that the vote to legalize abortion in Ohio likely meant the heartbeat bill would have to be abolished or thrown out by the courts. Now he says maybe not. Laura, what changed? He thinks a few parts of it could stand. Maybe he wants the judge to look at it. And I'm not sure what he took a look at that changed his mind, because before this passed in the fall, he said this would happen. So he submitted a 19 page document to the Hamilton County Court on Friday. He said parts of the law would could continue, didn't provide a lot of specifics about which parts he wanted to defend, because remember, the lawsuit is he's defending the part uh, we bill in the lawsuit, but those could come in the futures. So he wants to be able to supplement additional defenses, including affirmative defenses like litigation and as this matter proceeds. That's what the filing said. So Senate, this was Senate Bill 23. It wasn't just dealing with the fetal heartbeat and when you're allowed to have an abortion, which is ends up being about six weeks before a lot of women would even know they're pregnant. I guess it created a legislative committee that would work to ensure Ohioans are informed about adoption. There would be an account to pay for activities to promote foster care and adoption, and that would be funded by fines assessed on doctors who perform abortions in violation of the law. Obviously, that part wouldn't necessarily be able to continue. I think it's worth looking at these things. I didn't remember that foster care and abortion or foster care and adoption were part of the original bill. Yeah. I just wonder, is this legitimate business for the attorney general or is it politics so that when he's running for governor, he could say, hey, I, I fought the abolishment of the heartbeat bill? Well, that's a very good point. We all know that he wants to run for governor and... I, I don't even know where Houston's come off on this, if he said anything specific about it. But you're right, it's playing to a base. And when you're got to run in a primary, you run for the fringiest, most conservative part of your, of, you know, the Republican Party. 
We we should be clear, though. He does seem to clearly acknowledge that the vote of the people, the, the landslide vote of the people enshrined the right of abortion and the heartbeat part right. of the bill is null and void and the courts will eventually throw it out. Right. And so the judge, Hamilton County Common Pleas Judge Christian Jenkins, says that he plans to render a decision by May 20th, which when you think about Ohioans passing the constitutional amendment in november that's a long time yeah but we aren't enforcing it in the meantime so it's It's been on hold right right you're listening to today in ohio this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Railroads are all over the place this week about their safety standards as we discuss the one-year anniversary of the East Palestine train wreck. But Layla, what are they really doing? A court case shows what they think about making the rails safer. Yeah. Ohio lawmakers in March had passed the state transportation budget, which included a new rule requiring that all freight railroads in most circumstances keep a crew of at least two members. And the Association of American Railroads has challenged that two-person crew requirement on constitutional grounds. They say federal law preempts states from setting such a rule, and they argue that there's no data to suggest that a one-person crew is less safe than a train with more staff. Both sides have filed motions for summary judgment that allows U.S. District Judge Michael Watson to rule on the case in lieu of a full trial. But Attorney General Dave Yost is arguing that the preemption doesn't apply because there's no conflict between the new state law and the federal laws that regulate railroads. He's also arguing that a legal principle of equal sovereignty limits the ability of Congress to apply railroad laws that subject states to different burdens without good reason. The 5,000 rail miles in Ohio are the fifth most of any state in the nation, he points out. Because of that argument, the U.S. Department of Justice has weighed in as an interested party. They didn't make any arguments about Ohio's law, but they did say that the court should at least resolve the preemption issue before reaching any constitutionality ruling on you know, the Regional Rail Reorganization Act. And the preemption issue could be decided if Congress passes the proposed Railway Safety Act, which also would require two-person crews, but it's failed to pass the Senate. And a similar bill that doesn't include the two-person crews has stalled in the House. So that's looking kind of unlikely. Think about this, though. You're talking about trains that have dozens and dozens and dozens of cars. And they, they're they arguing that a law that says, hey, you ought to have two people on there so you can make sure that they're safe is, is invalid. They only want one person to be guiding cars. I, I, I wonder if, if the mistake here is trying to 
pass civil regulations instead of looking at it criminally. If I, if I have such reckless behavior that I endanger your safety, there's things in the criminal code where I could be charged with a crime. I would argue having one person guiding a train that long is reckless beyond any definition of that word and should be charged criminally. I can't, all week long, we've been hearing, oh, we're doing these great things, we're doing these great things. But behind the scenes, they're trying to kill something so basic as to have a second person on a train car that runs a mile long. It tells you everything you need to know. We're trying to figure out who's stopping the federal law. Uh, Sabrina Eaton in D.C. is trying to figure out who's, who's in the pocket of these train companies so deeply that they're blocking such basic safety requirements as we're talking about here because somebody must be getting paid off to do that it defies all common sense to to say no no one person is enough to guide those trains well i find it hard to believe that the data wouldn't support the notion that a two a two person staff on a train is safer than a one person train I mean, unless unless the fact is that you need more than two people to be safe, and and maybe having one or two is uh, you know, is is about the same that your chances of derailment are just as high because that's not enough. Maybe you need five. I don't know. Well, there but, were stories though at the time of East Palestine that talked about the overheating of the bearings and having the second person paying greater attention to the warning signs of that might have raised the alarm that we need to stop this train before the bearing blows apart and we have the derailment. I, I just, it's just mind-boggling. I mean, when you're driving your car, one person driving your car on the train tracks, it's one person with dozens and dozens of them. It, it's just staggering that they're getting away with this. They have no regulation. They're recklessly endangering countless Americans. Congress will not pass this law because they appear to be bought and paid for. I mean, Sharon Brown and J.D. Vance keep raising the alarm. Why can't we pass something so basic and simple? Who's in the way of it? We're trying to find out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Ohio Turnpike says it hit a new milestone. Lisa, what is it? Yeah, the Ohio Turnpike has 80 electric vehicle charging stations at eight of its service plazas along the Turnpike. They surpassed the 100,000 mark on usage of those, and this is going back to 2019 when the first one was installed. This has increased steadily over time, they say, and it should go even higher when more charging stations are installed along the Turnpike's 241 miles. They have six remaining service plazas that don't have EV chargers yet, but they hope to install them at some point, but they don't really have a time frame. They're still discussing which private sector firms to work with because this has been a public-private partnership to bring these charging stations to Ohio. Currently, 64 of the 80 are operated operated by Texas-based Tesla. The other 16 are operated by Virginia-based Electrify America, which is a subsidiary of Volkswagen. In Ohio, I didn't realize this, I guess we reported it, but Ohio opened the nation's first EV charging station in December of 2022. And that was, of course, coming from the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Anecdotally, I have noticed when I'm on the turnpike, there are quite a few electric cars out there. I mean, you see them, you see Teslas and you see some of the others. And I always wonder, because they, you know, they're cruising down the road at 80 miles an hour. 
how far can they go? Because <laughs> it, it seems like, you know, every mile you go, you're draining that battery. And then, you know, off the turnpike, there are going to be 26 EV stations built along I-70, 71, 76, 77, and 90. These are going to be at gas stations, stores, and restaurants. I do know I drove by a brand new Sheets last night. Um, at 480 and where 271 and 480 kind of break off and they had eight charging stations brand new charging stations you are seeing though that the auto companies are pulling back a bit from this some are looking more at hybrids because people want the ability to to go longer distances one of them is now looking very squarely at hydrogen fuel cells because they think that that is the way to go so it'll who knows what 10 years will look like? Will it be EV stations? Will it be other technologies? Uh, right now, though, there's more and more of them on the turnpike. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With the Northeast Ohio population stagnant for years now and the need for certain kinds of workers growing rapidly, Laura, what's the strategy of some agencies here for getting more people to move to Northeast Ohio? They want to position us as a tech hub. And this is the work of a group called the Cleveland Talent Alliance, which was formed by the Cleveland, sorry, Greater Cleveland Partnership, when they were working with Destination Cleveland, and they said, hey, can we use your campaign to help people move here? And so this idea of the Talent Alliance was born in 2022. We've got a couple of goals. They want to increase the percentage of working age adults who indicate a willingness to relocate, relocate to Cleveland. So not even moving here, but just maybe. They want to convert the college students in Northeast Ohio into permanent residents and elevate Cleveland to a top three tech city in the Midwest. We actually have a lot of tech jobs here. People just don't think of us as tech because it's not consumer technology. It's more B2B technology. That's the kind of thing it makes me think of the big profile that Sean McDonnell wrote about Overdrive over the holidays, that big company that provides all the eBooks to libraries, which I had no idea was in Cleveland and is a technology that people use all over the country. So we just have to do a better job of telling our story about that. And then when kids come to college here, converting here them to want to stay. What it's all great that they need to do this. We need to fill these jobs. What what struck me about this story, though, is everything that we're talking about. We were talking about a year ago. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the the thought that other cities are much more focused on keeping the students here, Philadelphia and Columbus. I think Pittsburgh is another one. And here we are. It's a year later, and they're saying, "Okay, here's our strategy." Well, why did it take so long to say that's our strategy? And what are we actually doing? To, to keep them here. In other cities, the colleges all get together and work together to do that. And in Cleveland, traditionally, you haven't had a whole lot of cooperation. It seems like they say they need to cooperate, but is there any sign that anything has changed yet? No, I don't think so, because these are just setting their goals. They formed this in 2022. It's 2024, and we're talking about the goals at this point. Pittsburgh was the one city that was doing worse than us in terms of okay, population then, growth. And they're not one of them. It was Philadelphia. I know it was one. Columbus has done a good job. Well, of it. Columbus has the big bonus of having Ohio State here, right? But BW, Baldwin-Wallace University, actually has leading a task force on how to get college students to stay. And apparently 90% of their graduates stay in town. So they're doing something right. But that's got to add into the rest of the the area. Yeah, I guess I, I saw this a little bit more as a cup half empty because it, it felt like 
this is the conversation we had in the middle of the pandemic. What are we actually doing yet? And maybe they had to announce this to get themselves moving, but you want to see some progress on this. Other cities are way ahead of us. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The groundhog said last week spring is coming. We've barely had a winter, as Laura knows from her skiing travails. Layla, how much of Lake Erie has been ice covered and how unusual is it? Well, we had a brief cold snap recently in the midst of this really mild winter, but now most of the ice that formed in that brief window has pretty much melted away. Just a bit more than 10% of Lake Erie was frozen as of last Thursday, according to the Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory. The peak so far was just shy of 36% of the lake on January 22nd. And if you look back in history, in, in 33 winters since record-keeping began in 1973 on this issue, more than 90% of Lake Erie has been frozen. That includes completely freezing over in 1978, 79, and for the last time in 1996. In nine winters, the maximum ice coverage for Lake Erie has fallen below 50%, but seven of those nine have happened in the past 26 years. And this is important for a few reasons. A few reasons. One is to ensure a good walleye hatch. Frozen lake conditions are most likely to ensure that plankton bloom at the right time for those hatching walleye to give the fish enough food at the right time. Also, you know, a frozen lake offers recreational opportunities like ice fishing. And also ice coverage factors into the amount of snow that we get. The less ice coverage, the greater potential for lake effect snow, though there, there are other conditions at play with that phenomenon too. All of that said, you know, the average day for maximum ice coverage on Lake Erie isn't until February 10th. So that's coming up here. <laughs> I don't think we're going to see a lot more ice warming, but, you know, there's still some winter ahead of Another us. Another thing that's bad about the lake not freezing is that the erosion, the wave action continues to erode the shoreline. So when the, yeah. Yes. I learned that actually recently on a field trip with one of my kids to the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center. They were talking exactly about that, how the little to no ice on the lake escalates the erosion mm -hmm. problem on the shoreline because the, the lake just churns mm -hmm. all winter long. And if we don't have a frozen lake, we get that Lake Erie gray. So complaining about the gray days, if we had a frozen lake, we'd have more sunshine. Nothing was more striking to show this than the photo that was on the front page of the Plain Dealer. Uh, what was it, two days ago, yesterday? And I remember a few years back looking at the ice coverage satellite photos as regular as you can. You can't see it when it's cloudy. So that you couldn't really see the ice coverage in, in the lake for most of January. But the photo we got on Sunday when it was sunny, I mean, the whole lake mm -hmm. looks melted. I mean, it, it, you just don't see that in late January. It's the strongest evidence we've seen of just how warm this winter has been because of El Nino. But you're right, Laura, we had the grace January that I can ever remember because the water kept evaporating into the sky and blocking the sun. You know, I have to say that I, I laughed a little when I read the story because of the <laughs> the reference to ice fishing reminded me of what that one suburban maker said a couple of years ago about why <laughs> right. he didn't want ice fishing in his community. You know what they're doing in there. The, those ice shanties, yeah. prostitution. Yeah, it was bizarre. It was out in <laughs> so it's Hudson. probably better that Lake Erie hasn't frozen over, I guess. <laughs> yeah. They did get out ice fishing one weekend, and then the Coast Guard sent out the release, like, how many fishermen rescued on an ice floe? And I told Pete Krause, we should check to see how much it costs taxpayers every time those guys get rescued from an ice floe. You're listening Happens to Today in Ohio.
Northeast Ohio is proud of its industrial heritage, but there can be a downside when industries are reckless. Lisa, how much is Republic Steel paying in its latest fine for polluting the waterways? And what does that bring its recent total of fines to? Yeah, they've been paying fines since December of 2022. This latest one is $700,000 for allowing chemicals to escape from now-closed plants in Lorraine and Canton into nearby waterways. And this stems from a federal lawsuit that was filed recently alleging violations of the Clean Water Act. So uh, the... The effluent was dumped into Nimshillen Creek in Canton and the Black River in Lorraine. Republic Steel has paid over $2 million in the last 13 months to state and federal regulators. This is their third civil penalty in that time. Uh, The Lorraine plant was idled in 2016, and again in 2018, the Canton plant closed just last August. So Republic Steel has fixed issues. There was a groundwater pump that was discharging stormwater that came into contact with contaminated machinery. And back in December of 2022, they paid almost a million bucks in an agreement with the Department of Justice on the Canton plant releasing lead into the air. And then December of 2023, they paid $360,000 for air pollution from Canton. And that was black dust that went and covered nearby homes and cars. When you're trying to attract young people to come here to work, as we discussed earlier in this episode, you don't want that, right? You want to show that we have metro parks and we're an outdoor kind of area and we care about the environment. So when you have a major industrial presence that doesn't care about the environment, I imagine that hurts you. That gets out that Ohio is not really focused on being environmentally safe. Shame on Republic Steel. They're hurting the region by what they're doing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got one more. Cleveland's own Tracy Chapman stole the show at the Grammys with her duet on her song, Fast Cars. We figure a lot of people don't know about her roots here, so we republished a Mike Norman profile from 30 years ago. Laura, how has her Northeast Ohio background inspired some of her art? This is kind of crazy that Mike Norman interviewed her in 1992, and she doesn't do a lot of interviews, so I learned something from this. She's 59 years old. She won multiple Grammys in 1989, including Best New Artist, and Fast Car won the award for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance that year. But that actually wasn't her biggest hit. The thing is, she she grew up in Cleveland, and her mom was divorced. She had a sister. They were toddlers when her mom was divorced. They live in this black working class neighborhood on Cleveland's east side. And her mom worked really hard. That's what her, her uh, Tracy Chapman's song, Women's Work, is about. Just how hard it is to be a single mom. She she worked a series of jobs to support the kids. But she took them all over to these cultural offerings the city offers. The museums, opera, concerts. She's, Tracy started playing ukulele at age three. She was enrolled for guitar and clarinet lessons at the Cleveland Music School Settlement when she was seven. But she had some bad experience. She walked to school. Uh, she was in middle school at the time when a boy came up to her, a white boy, shouted racial epithets at her. She stood her ground and they had this, you know, she she basically told him to something off. She kept walking and then he attacked her. He pulled out a gun and he said, if you don't run, I'm going to shoot you. But she thought, if I run, he will shoot me. So his friends eventually called him back and she was okay. Like 
physically unharmed, but that really stuck with her. She ended up going to high school at a boarding school in Connecticut where her teachers and faculty were very supportive of her. They took up a collection to buy her first guitar and they said, you don't owe us anything, just keep singing what what is in you. Yeah, I, I realized when this all blew up on uh, the night that she sang that you and Layla weren't even 10 years old when Fast Cars came out. <laughs> and, well, and I said to you, I said, Luke Combs probably wasn't even born when Fast Car came out. And he wasn't. He was born in 1990. So two years after that song. And my kids love the song. Now, they prefer the Luke Combs version just because that's the one on the radio. But it has found a whole new audience. I don't know about you, Lisa, but I remember when talking about a revolution came out like it was yesterday. It's hard to believe it was that yeah. long ago. I'm glad Mike Norman did the profile. I had to look up the date to see when that – because that song took the world by storm. It was so unusual and so haunting from an artist who kind of came out of nowhere. And it's still a haunting song today. And I was really, I didn't get to see the Grammys. I don't watch award shows, but the way Luke Bryan looked at her while they were singing, his admiration for her was so on display. It was really touching. Yeah, it was. It was. And just be I'm clear, sorry. it's Luke Combs. There's a lot of Lukes <laughs> in country music. <laughs> But I agree. And she looked kind of taken aback at the response she got because she's very private, doesn't do a lot of touring anymore. I think her last public appearance was 2020. So for her to look out at that audience, everybody's singing along and so appreciative of her and her contributions to music that, yeah, it was was lovely to watch. Big Northeast Ohio movement. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. And thanks, everybody who listens to Today in Ohio.